what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the ACAST family. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part five of the story of Stephen Lawrence, arrested, tried and convicted for the murder of his father, Willard Lawrence. It's a crime he's always maintained he's innocent of. Steve and I began recording our conversation in the latter part of 2023. And as we neared the end of the year, a series of bad weather events where I live meant my internet was down uh, for some time over the Christmas period, so I'd lose contact with Steve. However, once everything was back up and running, I would still struggle to reach him. Again, over this journey, this isn't unusual. Many things can happen inside these penitentiaries, which means the men and women are unable to communicate with the outside world. However, after sending multiple messages and not hearing back, I did get slightly concerned for Steve's well-being, so I decided to try and call the facility. Brooks Correctional Facility, this office. How may I help you? Yeah, hi, officer. Um, I just wanted a quick call. I've been unable to get hold of uh, an inmate for a while now, so I just wanted to check if there was an incident. Prisons, much like really any type of institution that houses people, aren't about to give out specific information about particular individuals and their circumstances. However, the officer at the prison assured me that there had been no serious incidents to speak of and no lockdowns, which might stop Steve from getting in touch with me. However, just a few days after making that call, my fears were subsided as the phone rang and Steve gave me a call. Thank you for using GTL. Hello. Hey, Steve. How are you, sir? Good. Finally connected. Yes, I was getting worried about you, mate. I even called the prison to find out if there'd been any lockdowns or something because I hadn't heard from you. No, it's uh, uh, the holidays and then I couldn't, I got your, uh, you know, I tried when you had the tornado. I called, I think, four times 
and then I found out that, and then our JPEG machines in here have just their. And when I went in the, the room this morning, there was one working. I jumped right on, and I saw your message, and then typed in. I don't know if you got that or not. Yeah, I got it. I got it this morning. I did. Yeah. So that's uh, it's good to uh, good to hear from you, sir. How was your? I mean, weird to say, but how was your New Year's and all that sort of stuff? Well, yeah, kind of, you yeah, know, same, so-so. Same. But yeah. last night was really good. What What happened last night? Michigan won the national championship. Ah, <laughs> I see the football. <laughs> yeah. Set up inside the ten. Hail, hail, Michigan! They are the champions of. Yeah. Right. Okay. So there's uh, a lot of. Uh, a joyous atmosphere happening around uh, the facility? Oh, yeah, all over the state. Yeah, okay. Like I'm sure uh, down at uh, the U of M, they're really going crazy. Oh, well, I'm glad you uh, had something to sort of perk you up and lift your spirits. That's good. Yeah. So in our previous episode, we were looking at Steve's trial and some of the accusations that were made about him. And over the course of the holiday period in between assembling bikes and replacing loud toys with batteries for the kids, I was also reading extensively through pages and pages of transcripts from his trial. The one that interested me the most was, of course, that of his brother Don's. As we know by now, Steve is convinced that his brother Don made him the scapegoat for their father's murder. Don would make many claims about his brother and father's relationship, as would a few other witnesses for the prosecution. Claims, Steve says, were not only hurtful, but just not true. There's multiple people that would get up on the stand and say that they believe that your um, relationship with your father was strained. Yes, and boy, was that ever hurtful. And that was part of the thing, too, that, and, and I don't know that I believe, I, I know I shared with you at Kay Simpson's house, the, the trial was sequestered, and there's no evidence in this because I didn't do it, and Candy had nothing to do with it. There's no evidence, so it was all based on lies. And I know I told you that they, they had the state police detectives talked out down at Kay's house, and they would have future witnesses down there and tell them what they had to say and everything. And that's, you know, because why else would they be there night after night? to, uh, you know, if you're telling the truth, you don't need to have any type of meetings. You go and get on the stand and tell the truth. One of the claims that was made against Steve was that on the night of the fire, he would supposedly call his brother Don before deciding to call 911. Again, another claim Steve says that not only wasn't true, but has also been proven to be untrue. Um, I did a hell of a lot of reading um, over the Christmas period of um, the trial transcripts and testimonies and that sort of stuff. So I have a hell of a lot of notes that I've made for us to go through, if that's all right. Okay. So obviously a lot of reading of your brother's, uh, brother Don's testimony. The conjecture to start with was the fact that apparently you were supposed to have called him first before you even called the emergency services. So there's this whole discussion around the time that you called him and the fact that he was already awake when you called him. He was called after uh, the authorities were called. Yep. And that was definitely proven uh, beyond a reasonable doubt in Candy's trial. Yep. Because they'd have the call log, so surely. Was, no. Wouldn't they be able to, because obviously when, when you make phone calls, it's kind of, it's registered through the phone companies, isn't it? So there's phone records. Best I remember, the local calls really weren't. Okay, just mobiles. And 
because it was a big to-do, you know, and I think I mentioned to you is numerous people called the fire department uh, about the fires and yeah. like that, but yet all those just mysteriously got accidentally erased. Right. Except for mine. What I did, because we had had previous fires and stuff around there, and even like Don's house, uh, the fire department, police, they were all on speed dial where you just pressed a button. And one of the things I've got to send to you, it's it's a map that uh, was drawn up and, and shows Don's house and it shows my dad's house and the fire department. And if if I would have called Don first, he would have been at the house long before the fire uh, fire engines were. Yeah. And if you, I think his testimony. So I think he said, I believed I followed the first fire truck in, and they met at McKibben's Corners. The only way that could have happened is is the fact that, and they they proved this. Understand, experts did that. They were the fire department was called first, and it was him that went and told them where my dad was. Okay, so to break that down quickly, Steve's brother Don says that he would meet the first fire truck at a spot called McKibben's Corner, and then he follows it in to his dad's home. What experts would later say is that because of the distance from the fire station to this McKibben's Corner, if Don met the fire truck there, that would have to mean that he was called after they were. Otherwise, he would have made it to the house fire long before the first fire trucks even arrived. Now let's take a look at Don's testimony regarding getting the call about the fire. So Steve's brother Don would testify that he was awake just prior to receiving the call about the fire at his father's home. Why was he up? Well, at Steve's trial, he says that he had to let the dog out. And when he comes back to bed, he would apparently ask his partner if they'd heard from his father. As they'd apparently requested, he called to let them know he got in okay. She tells him that they hadn't heard from him. Moments later, the phone rings and they're told about the fire at his brother's home. The following is taken from transcripts from Steve's trial. Okay, and I assume at some point you retired for the evening. What happened? Don. I believe very shortly after we got home, I had turned the TV on and actually gone to bed in the hopes of catching the last of the basketball game. Michigan State was playing Indiana University that night and we'd sort of surprised them earlier. And I guess we sort of got a surprise that evening. But that game was already over and there was another game on and I basically fell asleep. Prosecution. Were you awoken at some point later on in the evening? Actually, I was awakened on several points during the course of the evening by my dog, who seemed to be rather restless and wanting to go outside. And then again, we were awoken at 2.01am with a telephone call. Had you been up with your dog prior to the phone call at 2.01? Don. Yes, sir. I had let him out sometime prior to 2am and had returned back to the bedroom. More than specifically, actually very specific, at 1.57am, I had returned to the bedroom and gotten back in bed. And you're testifying about times from what? Where do you get the times that you're testifying? I have three digital clocks that are in our bedroom, two of them that are lit up and one that is not. And I just noticed that it was 1.57am when I came back from bringing Sparty in from outside. I want to quickly interject here because from all of my time over the course of creating this show, I have obviously read a lot of court transcripts. And one thing I've seen time and time again is what appears to be prosecutors kind of helping or guiding witnesses with their testimony. 
For instance, with that last section there, Don says that he was awoken multiple times during the evening and that he was awoken again by the phone call at 2.01. The prosecutor then comes in as if to almost correct him and ask him if he was already awake when the call came in. He then seems to correct himself and say that, yes, actually, in fact, he was taking the dog out, came back to the room, spoke to his partner, strangely about his father, at 1.57am, and then four minutes later, the phone rings. Now, you could say I'm being pedantic or picky here, but a man is on trial for murder. I think we need to be pedantic and picky. Here's more of Don's testimony. Are all of those clocks kept fairly accurate? Well, they are kept very accurate. Then there was a phone call, you said, at 2.01. What happened with respect to the phone call? At 2.01, the phone rang. Actually, just prior to that, I had asked Mary Jo, as I was getting back in bed, if, if Dad had called because we'd requested that he call. And in fact, she'd indicated that he had not called. And I believe my response was something to the effect of, damn him. That had happened one other time a few months back where he didn't call because he just got excited or he was tired or whatever. And that happened just prior to that phone call. Then at 2.01am, the phone call came in, which Mary Cho took, and I heard her say something like, you know, we'll be right there, or something to that effect. And she'd advised me that my dad's home was on fire. What, what happened at that point? Well, at that point, when she first made that comment to me, I, I think I was taken aback or or dumbfounded or shocked because I think I can specifically remember asking her again, what? And she said that your dad's home was on fire. We got to go, let's go, something to that effect. At that point in time, we got out of bed, got dressed. Uh, Prior to dressing, I may have gone in the bathroom. I think I, I can remember splashing some water on my face or something. She was preparing to get the dog properly secured. And I think I remember asking the question, you know, is dad out of the house? And she said, I I didn't ask. I then picked up the telephone from the kitchen area, called back to Stephen Candy's, and Candy answered the telephone at that point in time. uh, And I asked the question if dad was out of the house. And to the best of my recollection, she said, no, Steve is just getting ready to go over now. That was basically the extent of the conversation. And from that point, we departed the home. Now, the, the phone call from your, from your home back to Stephen Candy's home, would that have appeared on any phone records? No, sir. That is not a toll call from, from Hastings to Middleville. How soon after the phone call back to Stephen Candy's did you and Mary Jo leave your residence? I think we departed almost immediately after, after the phone call. It could have been, you know, a few seconds or a minute or so. Mary Jo was still, I think, possibly at the point in time chasing Sparty and trying to, trying to get him and get his collar off because we were somewhat excited in the house and running around trying to get ready to go. But it was very, very shortly after the phone call. Someone else that would testify at this trial was a neighbour by the name of Kay Simpson. She testified that she was awoken by a frantic banging at the door. As she comes to open it, Steve and his son are already running back in the direction of the burning home and Steve is shouting that his dad's house is on fire. Kay would make mention that Steve and his son appeared to be fully dressed. Obviously, the inference here is that had Steve been abruptly woken up in the middle of the night by this loud explosion and then seeing his father's house on fire, would he really have taken the time to get dressed? One of the neighbours, Kay, uh, Kay Simpson, is it? Yes. So she gets up on the stand and she says that, because you apparently came over to her place and sort of banged on the door and then as she opens it, you and one of your sons 
uh, or both of your sons, something like that, were sort of running back towards the house and you were telling them there's fire at the dad, your dad's place. Um, first of all, she notes that you guys were sort of fully dressed. Um, she, she points out the fact that you were, you know, winter coats, um, pants, shoes, the lot, which I, she's probably trying to suggest that if you sort of just sprung out of bed because this had just started, you might not be fully dressed, but everyone looked like they were sort of fully dressed and ready to go. To the best of my recollection, I probably was, and I don't, I don't know if the kids were stuff like that. My clothes were right there, very easy to, extremely easy to put on to go outside. Uh, it's not like I had to go someplace to put them on. They were right there and, and grab them immediately, and, you know, it's wintertime. Yeah. And it didn't take, it didn't take long at all. So, as I like to do, let's put ourselves into a scenario. You're at home, already awake, it's the middle of the night. You get a phone call and it is your brother's partner saying that your father's home is on fire. What do you think you would do? I think I would immediately jump out of bed, probably put some pants on, and I would be to the car as quickly as possible. That's what I think would happen. Obviously, thankfully, this has never happened to me. So I don't know what I would do in that scenario. But Don's story about how he gets the phone call, the phone gets put down, he goes to the bathroom to splash some water on his face, his partner's chasing the dog around the house, he then goes to the kitchen, calls back to check if his father had got out, puts down the phone and then says that he thinks that Maybe a few seconds or minutes later they they left because his partner's still chasing the dog around the house. Now, again, going back to the scenario and putting myself in that particular position, if my wife was for some reason chasing our dog around the house trying to get it secured, I might say, I'm going. But who knows? Now, am I saying that Brother Don is guilty here? Of course not. Now, I would suggest that if Brother Don was the one who was on trial, the prosecution may have looked at that story and said, well, Brother Don, why are you splashing water on your face? Why are you chasing a dog around the house? Why are you not leaving as soon as you get that phone call? Your father's house is on fire. If you're worried about the dog, leave the partner at home and say, oh, I'm going. Who knows how anyone would react? But what I'm saying is to vilify one person because he apparently got fully dressed before going over to the fire and not vilifying another man who also got fully dressed but also gave himself a wash and chased the dog around the house seems absurd. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Something else that could be classified as odd or potentially suspicious is that, as we know, during Steve's trial, Don says that he is awake at that time of the morning because of the dog continuing to wake him up throughout the evening. However, Once Steve is found guilty and sent to prison, his wife Candy would go on trial for this same crime. Now, during his testimony on the stand during Candy's trial, the story as to why he was awake changes. Yeah, well, you were asking what he was doing. I took a minute here to to look and see. And he, he, at the time, if you would put, when they said the fire started, he testified that he was watching the NCAA basketball game. And then I was looking, this is uh, Candy's attorney with uh, Jerry Mattioli on there. And uh, he said, he asked him, so there's no reason then at two o'clock in the morning, Don would just happen to ask Mary Jo, geez, dad didn't call four hours later. And he didn't, you didn't find that suspicious. And Matty always says, I didn't find it suspicious. I suppose in retrospect it is now. And he said, you didn't find it suspicious that Don Lawrence would look at two clocks at exactly 2.01 so he could testify exactly what time it was. And then he also did some investigation. And, of course, like I said, Don testified that he was up because he was watching an NCAA basketball game. Well, they went and did some checking, and there was no basketball game on the night of uh, February 19th or into the 20th. So it was a flat-out lie. He was just awake and, uh, I'm waiting, maybe. You know, speculation, but you you believe that he knew more about this fire than he was letting on, so maybe he was awake to... uh to wait, as you said, waiting to hear some news about what was happening or waiting for someone to call him and say there's a fire at Dad's house? Yeah, well, that's a definite possibility, without a doubt. I mean, there's just, when you go back, Jack, and look of, of why, you know, he turned off the fire alarm, he had to manually do that, why he disabled my dad's burglar alarm for the first time since my mom and dad built that house. There's so many things that, that uh, just don't add up. So if you're a witness in a trial or even a potential witness in a trial, in most cases you will not be permitted to sit in on any other aspects of that trial. You are only allowed to be there to give your testimony and of course answer any questions about your evidence. This in part helps to prevent witnesses' testimony from being influenced by the testimony of other witnesses. So that meant in this case, Steve's brother Don was not permitted to be present during the trial of Steve. However, Steve tells me that he would overcome that by sending someone in to take notes for him. Uh, my brother Don had a, uh, a good friend. His name was Jim Fisher. And Jim Fisher at one time was the prosecuting, prosecuting attorney in that county. And then he, he left there and he went back into private practice. And our both of our trials were sequestered. Mine was sequestered, so, you know, 
And so what he did, because he couldn't get information, Don paid Jim Fisher over $32,000 to sit in my trial and take notes, and he was helping the prosecutor. You'd watch him, he'd be making notes and hand to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor would stand up and ask more questions. And then after each day of trial, this is from Candy, um, there was uh, Kay Simpson who was... She lived uh, two houses away from us. The state police detective or Jim Fisher or somebody would go to Kay Simpson's, Simpson's house after my trial was adjourned and meet with the upcoming prosecution witness at Kay's house. And uh, basically it was to ensure everybody would tell the same story of lies, what we think, because it was all a bunch of bull crap and, and made up things, you know, from the police and, and Mattioli. And they had to keep their story straight, and because the child was sequestered, they had to get information somehow. Now, as we've already spoken about on a number of occasions, Jerry Mattioli would make the point to say that Steve had apparently directed the fire crew to an incorrect window that was not his father's. would raise suspicions with investigators and drive a wedge through his family. When the firefighters arrived, Stephen didn't direct them to, the, to his father's bedroom. As the video shows, the firefighters were, uh, were attending to other parts of the house and not to the side where, the, uh, where Willard Lawrence was located. Again, the inference here that Steve was trying to obstruct the fire department or slow down their attempts at rescuing his father. But we know from Don's own testimony at trial that he says when he arrives on the scene, a firefighter asked him where his father's room was and he directed them to a top corner bedroom. But going back to the testimony made by neighbour Kay Simpson, she would say that when she arrived at the house that was on fire, she would scream for someone to get a ladder. She says Steve places the ladder at a window and she goes up and smashes it. She would eventually come down due to the smoke, but she would testify that she believed the window that Steve had placed the ladder at was his father's, but later finds out that in fact it wasn't his father's. And of course, I asked Steve about this. Yeah, I remember that in the testimony too, and she was there and it wasn't. And I've got a picture of that that uh, I'm going to send you. When when you see, Jack, when you see the, the, the picture, once you get it, you'll see as far as how on the back of my mom and dad's house, there was an overhang. The overhang did not go to their window. The overhang, and this was uh, an actual thought when I, actually, when I did it, when we put the ladder up there, is we put it at the closest window to my dad's room, and it was in where it was going and what Kay and I think it was Kay and Paul went up. I cannot remember for sure, but I think they went up and broke the window and it was the window to the blue room and thought pattern when I did that. And I don't know, I may do it the same way because it was a logical thing to do is the blue room, the door in there was never open. My mom and dad kept that door closed at all times and where the door was to the blue room if you opened that door, my mom and dad's room was probably six inches away to the to the left if you were in the hallway. So, I mean, it was right there. Yeah. And thought, thought bedroom was, well, if, you know, we got to bring him out, that, you know, he's a 70-year-old man, it would be the best thing to be able to come, and come out the blue room and come out over an overhang, because from the window to the overhang was maybe four foot at the most. That would be the easy thing to do. And in, in hindsight looking, you know, and it, 
it, they made a big deal of that. But the bottom line is, number one, Kay Simpson lived out there pretty much all my life and everything. My mom passed away in their bedroom. She knew where the bedroom was. And my brother, Don, who was the fire department, knew exactly what windows and stuff where my dad's was. Like I say, mine was a thought process for ease to get out of the house once we got in. And when they broke that window, I mean, smoke just bellowed out, you know, and I've never been in or around a fire before and didn't know how things were. And apparently that door had to be open. And the fact that uh, my brother Don testified, and I know you and I talked about this, that when there was, you know, rubble just everywhere from this house burning down, and my brother Don tells the authorities that a, a fire safe, was missing that was in the closet in the blue room and I wonder to this day how did he know that so if he says and apparently they never found it so somebody went into that blue room and got it I didn't even know that was one in there and the only way that knew it was in there was my brother Don of course and probably my dad obviously but that was my whole thought pattern around there was ease to, to get out and you know here we are As Steve mentions, Don would testify in court that a few items from his father's home would appear to be missing from the house, one being this apparent fire safe, something that was never located. One safe that was found was one from Steve's dad's office. Steve told me about this safe and the suspicious actions of his brother involving this safe in the hours after firefighters had got the fire under control. You know, I, I mentioned about how did Don know the very next day with thousands of pounds of rubble that there was a a, a, fi- a small fire safe who had money in it missing in the cash register missing. How did he know that? The next day, not the police. Okay, this is a murder investigation. He had the fire department break into my dad's safe, and, and we all watched. We were in our house watching, and, and when they got that door open, he had uh, hefty plastic bags and he was filling everything up he was just running and he'd fill bags up and run down to his cottage he'd come back fill another bag up and run down to his cottage and then when we tried to get what was in the safe he refused to turn it over even with a court order so from what steve is saying it does sound rather odd Surely, if this is a crime scene, nothing at all should be removed from that home until such time as police and investigators have had the chance to go through it themselves for potential evidence. This topic of the safe being removed from the premises would be brought up during the trial. When asked about it, Brother Don would indeed say that he'd asked the fire department if they'd come across this safe, to which they had. They would bring it out and get some equipment in order to open it. However, this is where Don's accounts of what happened, or more to the point, who was there during the opening of the safe, differ from Steve's. I asked Steve about it. He talks about that morning, um, he says that the fire had kindled down, and amidst all the trauma, he, uh, he says he realises that they still had a family to put back together. Uh, he said he knew his dad had a safe with, a very, impo- with very important papers in it. Um, and he says that they had an estate that they were going to have to deal with. Um, so he says he asks a fireman uh, if they'd run across it 
uh, in the fire at all. And they did find it, and they, he says that they brought it outside. Um, they then got some equipment to prise it open. Now, he says present for this opening of this safe were Mr Kempsky from the Michigan State Police. However, he said he, he couldn't swear to that. He said he, he was pretty sure that um, Mr Kempsky was there. Although he then goes on to say that Kemsky said that if it was going to be open, that he had to be there to view what was coming out of it. He also says that Brother Dick was there, uh, and he says um, that they asked you to come over as well. Uh, and also your sons. Uh, but then Mr Kemsky s- sends them away before the safe is opened. So he says, so Don says that when this safe is open, there's a fireman, there's Brother Dick, there's you, and there's this state police officer. Is that correct as you remember it? No. How I remember it, when they brought the safe house, the houses on the lake are close, okay? Uh, our house, Candy's our house, was on a 75-foot lot of lake frontage. My mom and dad's right next door was on a 50-foot. When they brought that safe out, it, out of the house, it was basically placed on a sidewalk, which was probably eh, 10 feet at the most from where our our property or our line was. And we were in the house, the best I remember, or maybe Candy, the kid, said something, and I do not remember any police at all out there, and I think we talked about this because it just still blew my mind that they allowed him to open it. What I do remember is when they got that thing open, the fireman got it open, that Don had garbage bags, you know, heavy-duty garbage bags, and he was loading those up and then running down to his cottage and came back and loaded them up and running down just as fast as he could to get stuff out of there. And I think I also shared with you, too, there about the, the disc that was on there, and I, that uh, it was something to do with the company and what was going on, I, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but and he would never turn that over because I kept talking to the attorneys to get that, and he refused to turn any of that stuff over into the, you know, for the court or for the attorneys. Well, because, I mean, he testifies that coming out of that safe were some documents related to an option for purchase of real estate and a grant of easement. Um, And now apparently these um, documents were related to your home. And he states that apparently you had been forced to sign paperwork for the option to purchase, which um, had apparently soured your relationship with your father. And at one point, uh, apparently, he sort of suggests that um, you and Candy may have even stated that um, you would put some less desirable people in that property if he wasn't careful. Absolutely 100% false. And that we did have an easement. And in June of 1991, um, I went to a food convention in, uh, in Los Angeles. And when I was out there, I got a, uh, numerous different contacts, different companies that were interested and had me to go to work for them. All of them were out of the state of Michigan. And I know I've already shared with you that everything I did and, and, and I respected so much is bouncing things off of my dad. And we talked about that and talked about me possibly, you know, going, you know, into Wisconsin, going into California, like that. And the, when, when we build our house, and you haven't seen a picture of it, it's a, it's a large home. It went from a cottage to a large home, and my dad at that point in time basically didn't have any access to take his docks, his boat, uh, anything else that he wanted out to the waterfront because 
the house was large, and our lot, like I said, we had a 75, he had a 50. He had a large home. And that was a mutual thing that uh, we said, you know, we got to have this for the future just in case we do take a job outside of the state so that you've always got access to the water. And there was nothing but good things about that, 100%. So you were never forced to sign any paperwork in, in regards to your home? Oh, absolutely not. Not at all. And like I said, everything that was done, it was just in case we did, you know, and, and I think I told you, or maybe it is, that was our dream home, you know, that that we, because we built that and and we grew up there and, and, and loved that. But uh, after all this, it certainly wasn't, you know, once, once uh, the fire happened and everything. But And the, the bottom line is, it, I could have gone out and, and made a lot more money and moved my career along, so like that. But it was much more important to stay there and, and be there for my dad after we lost our mom. You know, like I said he was over for dinner all the time. We were out fishing. We were every time, you know, just together as much as possible, an actual family. And that's something that my brother Don never had. It was all business. My brother Dick was gone, so like that. It was, a, it was a very good relationship. You have one minute remaining. Before we get cut off, are you able to call me back again today or we got to do another day? No, I got, no, I'm only allowed to do two here. Okay. So, no and I'm, I, we've got one kiosk. I see there's a guy on it. There's only one of them that are working and it's not working well. I will try to send you an email and we'll try to get a schedule going again. All right, good fantastic. With you. And yeah. that's all we've got time for. But coming up in our next episode, Steve and I will discuss some potential damning evidence that is brought up against him. One of which was that he apparently seemed to know more about the fire and where accelerant had been poured in the home than he should. And also, a Molotov cocktail was found in Steve's yard. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of ESA. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.